Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, the story of how one New York City man transformed himself from a drug kingpin to a fitness entrepreneur. Cos Marte grew up on Manhattan's Lower East Side. He says his childhood was surrounded by drugs, crime, and poverty. As a teenager, he would often sell drugs from inside or outside the corner store. And by the age of 19, Marte says, he was making over $2 million a year. He says at times he brought in as much as $30,000 a day. Marte says to him, drugs weren't a big deal. It was just a job. But when he was 23, the law caught up with him. He was arrested and sentenced to seven years in prison. He was overweight when he was locked up. At 5 feet 8 inches tall, Marte weighed over 230 pounds. Prison doctors, he says, gave him a grim prognosis. He might not live to be released. Marte recently shared his story with me before leading one of his exercise classes. This was all created while I was in a 9x6 cell in prison, um, actually in solitary confinement. That's where I derived the plan of becoming uh, CEO of a, a boot camp, and I realized that that was my path that I wanted to take and, and give back to people. All um, right, so we need to go even further back now, of back. course. And uh, where were you born? How did you grow up? So I was born and raised in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, at the time, it was mid-'80s, late-'80s, 90s. It was just a messed-up uh, part in the neighborhood. Uh, Drug-infested everywhere. And um, just growing up, I seen... Uh, Drugs all over my building, my neighborhood, and the first avenue uh, to become wealthy was through the world of drugs. And that was my whole goal as a a child was uh, I wanted to be rich. So I actually, you know, got involved with the drug game at the age of 11, started smoking weed, and then eventually became, became one of the dealers on the corner and just grew from there. So how old were you when you started selling marijuana on the Lower East Side? So I was about 13. That was like 98. Yeah, I started selling weed, and then after I got into like high school, I started dealing with coke and crack. And I started dealing on the corner of Eldridge and Broome. And from there, I created a whole empire. I had about 20 people working for me. It, I changed the whole game up once the whole like neighborhood changed up. There was way more uh, higher class people coming in through, you know, coming into bars and stuff like that. And I managed to create uh, like 10,000 business cards, and I started giving them out to people in the neighborhood, in the bars, and and stuff like that, and just start, targeted like the rich people. And said I was had a 24-hour cocaine delivery service, and from there I had like my friends working for me, had connections with vehicles, had got on vehicles, and we just made a whole New York City delivery system. How big of an operation was this monetarily? How much money were you bringing in? So by the age of 19, I was making over two million dollars a year, and I went. I, I was doing that for about four or five years. So I went into prison at 23. Yeah. So I, I seen. Like, my, my parents, they grew up, you know, very poor in, like, the farmlands of the Dominican Republic. And when they came here, they had very little. My mom came here when she was six months pregnant, pregnant with me. And then I came out, and 
just seeing her work, she, she worked her behind off to, you know, feed us, um, my siblings and I. And, you know, she worked in this factory on Bleecker Street, earning a few cents per each item she sold and just coming home. So basically nothing. And I seen that, like, her tired working uh, behind off hours and hours uh, every day. And I said I, I didn't want to live that life. I wanted to be rich. And when people would ask me when I was a kid, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would say, I want to be rich. So the first opportunity I received was through the world of drugs. At that point, were you even thinking, hey, yes, I want to be rich, but this is not the, the way to go about it. I, I'm getting into deep. I and mean, what, what was going through your mind? So it just, like, fell into play. I, was, uh, I didn't think drugs was a big deal. I thought it was a job. I would see just people doing it like it was legal. And I just thought it was a way to provide for your family. So that's that's the avenue, and that's the that's what I seen growing up. So I didn't think it was a problem. I, I didn't think I was hurting anybody. I just thought it was just a form of income. So, how well known were you in the neighborhood among the locals? I mean, here you are, this teenager, yeah. you know, bringing in a couple of million dollars. I mean, how did that play out on the Lower East Side? So. It was, everybody looked up to me, and, and I was the youngest of the people that dealt drugs there that made a lot of money out of it. I would just splurge and just give people money, like send, go on trips and just spend $25,000 in a weekend and just help, you know, give, like, just party all the time. And people were just uh, attracted to that. Uh, I remember bringing a horse and carriage from Central Park and, and bringing it down to the Lower East Side. And like, just dealing drugs out of a horse and carriage from Central Park was pretty crazy. And, and people would see that and they were like, what the hell? Like, who does this? And popping out of like $100,000 vehicles with mink jackets and stuff like that it was just absurd. And people would just look up to me. And even the kids that were there at the time, they were like, wow, I want to be that person. What about your mom? Was she aware of what you were doing? Yeah, she was aware. Like, I got involved. I was in and out since I was 13. So uh, she was aware of me basically at that time. Um, once, like, 12 years old, I started smoking weed and, you know. Uh, but she didn't respect it. She didn't, she didn't want me involved with it. She had nothing. to. She never dealt with drugs herself. So she was just a hardworking person that wanted to just make it in the United States and do the right thing. How, how quickly did that business take off for you, would you say, when you, you realized, I mean, you were at the, basically at the point of no return? I guess you really tasted, the, you, were, you were tasting the fruit, and I'm sure you didn't want to stop eating. Yeah, <laughs> funny way to put it. Um, so in the beginning, I, I was basically a worker. I was just there um, working for somebody, and then eventually I inherited the corner. And they seen the dedication, and this guy just retired from, like, the hustle game. And he said, if you want to handle it, like, run it. And that left me with workers. And then eventually I expanded more than just a corner and made it uh, across the five boroughs available. So, and past that, but that's another story. <laughs> and again, at your height, you were saying you were making about $2 million a, a, a year. Uh, what would you, I mean, grossing a day, how much would you say you were bringing in on any given day? Um, I've seen days where we made, like on, on a good day, I've seen 
$30,000 in one day, like just coming in. I had seven cell phones. That would be like a, a New Year's Day where everybody goes partying. It would be like a $30,000 night. And July 4th and all those days of celebration would be just like, that would be the most I'd probably see in a day. $30,000, that's I'm sure more than the median income of many people who live on the Lower East Side. And, and yeah, it is the medium, medium income is about $33,000. Um, just, uh, I, I don't know, it would just go in and out and just like party and have a lot of fun. Now, I was young. I didn't know what I was doing with money. So, I mean, I saved a little bit, but uh, spend a lot. So, so you said you were going on lavish vacations as well? Yeah, yeah. So, where would you go? Uh, trips to Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic, um, the Caribbean. Sometimes we would just drive, like, middle of nowhere. Like, I remember going, uh, driving north, and we just took Highway 87 north, and we bumped into some place where we got a snowmobile. And I just, like, a snowmobile rental was, like, $1,500 for everybody. It would be, like, 10 people. It's just, like, whatever, you know. When was the first time you went to jail? Uh, so the first time I got arrested was at 13. The first time I went to uh, prison was at the age of 18. What was that sentence? Where did you serve? So I served most of my last incarceration in Green Correctional Facility. I, and, and I was bounced around to different facilities, um, Lakeview, I've been in Monterey, Myra, um, Rikers Island a few times. So how many times total did you go? I mean, the last time, obviously, we'll get to that. But how many yeah. times did you spend in jail from the time you were 13 and the, till, since your last incarceration? A little bit over five years in prison. Over five years total? Or, yeah, or, total. And how, how long was your longest term? Uh, four years. So my last incarceration was four years. I was sentenced to seven years. And then due to Governor Patterson changing up the law, they gave me the availability to come home a little bit early. And that just uh, helped me come home today. Like, I would have still been in there. Um, my CR day would have been uh, March 21st, 2015. So A CR day meaning? Uh, so conditional release. So your conditional release, you have your max date, which is the full seven years. Conditional release is like one year before. So I would have came like one year before, plus I have five years parole on the back. So, but I came home March 21st, 2013. And I have five posts supervision, which is parole. And um, now that I'm doing so well, you know, my parole officer said I could get off in four months. So, uh, what were the charges? Uh, so I got um, eight to felony charges. Uh, I, I was charged with conspiracy. Uh, they was trying to charge me with kingpin uh, statute laws. They, they was charging me with an A1, but I pleaded down to an A2 just because the amount of drugs they caught me with what brought me to that level. But then they didn't have enough sales to direct. So the federal agents grabbed my case, and they felt it was not uh, a federal case. They brought it down to a state case. How did you get caught? So... It's a little bit of a long story. Um, I had a dispatcher. Uh, so I had all these seven, seven cell phones. I had one guy picking up all the phones for me. You know, I would pay him weekly. He was just working on a salary. And he would just stay in, uh, 
pay his apartment. He lived like on 67th Street in a nice little condo. Uh, and he would just stay home answering the phones all day, and he would have somebody else helping him out also. But this guy, uh, I guess he felt he wanted more, and he went around my back, started stealing customers, made another phone behind my back. Um, and then eventually that phone he made up was a phone that the federal agents got in touch with. And I found out that he was stealing customers. I found out about the phone through another customer, and I took away that phone from him. And I started calling, you know, people were calling from that number, and I was just sending my workers out there. And not knowing that the federal agents had that phone tapped, I was sending my workers out there and just eventually they had a six-month investigation, and I got caught down the line. So I was facing 12 to 24 years because it was my third felony. And I was grateful for the seven years. Actually, I was, I thank God when I said, they said seven years. And they, uh, so when I was in the precinct and I got arrested that same day, they were like, the district attorney was there. They already had a secret indictment. They was threatening me with 20, 12 to 24 years. Um, they saw my case was a pretty large case. And I was just like really crazy out of my mind and I said let me just get 24 years I don't give a f um let all my friends go like I'll take responsibilities for everything I started this and I'm gonna end it and that's how I went down and they said you're crazy and they threw me back in the cell and while I was in Rikers Island waiting for the, you know in court going back to back um that's when Thank God for Governor Spitzer, like, cheating on his wife and on a prostitute. But then Governor Patterson came into play. He changed the uh, uh, Rockefeller laws. And then from there, I was, I, I was granted the opportunity to do seven years. And then he changed that and to come home a little bit early. So I was really grateful for the time I received. Let's break this down a little bit more now in terms of how we got here. How much did you weigh when you went to jail? When I went into jail, I weighed over 230 pounds. And when I went into prison, I actually went to Rikers Island. I was there for about 11 months. And everything, I didn't, you know, you see a physician, but they don't really take your blood test like that and tell you how your health is. Until I got to upstate correctional, like upstate correctional facilities, and they're, I guess, your property of the state, so they take care of you a little bit more. And I went into the medical unit, and they said I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol levels. And they said if I don't start exercising and start eating correctly, that I could probably die in just, like, five years. So I was, you know, put two and two together. I was sentenced to seven years. Had five years, like, I could probably die in prison uh, if I don't start, like, working out. And that's where that, that just simply clicked, and I said, I, I need to start moving, and I started exercising. In your jail cell? Yes, yeah, so I, I, made, I created a series of workouts right in my jail cell that helped me lose over 70 pounds in six months. And after I, I lost all that weight, I started showing people, like, my before and after picture of my ID card, and they see how, like, I had the double chin, and I have, like, a small, cute face. So... <laughs> They are, people started just catching on the trend, and I, ha- I created a whole little boot camp while I was in there. And it was just uh, amazing how I, I found a way to give back uh, to people and not, not hurt society like I was before. 
So you were helping people in jail lose weight themselves. So you were running an exercise program in jail. Yeah. Yeah. Just like in the yard or? So in, in the yard and then there's uh, dorm areas that we were at in the gym, just different spots and in, in jail cells, like we were screaming out numbers, talking to each other across the tier, stuff like that. <laughs> How big was your cell? Uh, so it was nine by six. All you have is basically the bed is, is a seven-foot bed, and then you have, like, about two other two feet in front of you, and then on the other side you have, like, about six feet of width. So all I was doing just using my own body weight and not really a lot of movement um, to work with, but I, I created different type of workouts that you'll see today. And, how did you know what to do? I mean, how did you, I mean, wh- how did you go about doing that? So I, uh, in my previous incarceration, I went into shock military boot camp, which is run by ex-Marines who turned correctional officers and they're, they're drill instructors. So to come home early from my three-year uh, sentence from before, I, I took advantage of that program and I learned how to work out there and learned uh you know, a whole bunch of movements. Uh, I actually used some of the movements that they did in there, in here, in my class. I'm going to see it, but why don't you talk to me about what's involved in cost athletics, specifically, you know, what you developed in that, in that jail cell. So it's a low-risk injury boot camp, and what I do is uh, run my classes is I have, I set it at a high, a high rate. I just try to have everybody try to keep up with me, I have a military count where everyone uh, counts with me and it helps them breathe. And it's just a simple movements that you could probably say you, that I thought of while I was sitting in a, in, in a cell. Uh, instead of just a regular squat, I do like sit-downs. So we go, we, I call them up and downs. So I'll, I'll sit all the way down on the floor, we'll get back up and go down and get back up. And then like push up to a T-bone position and back and forth. And it's just things that I was just there bored and just like thinking of what to do and just made it up (laughs) and it it worked out. So you get out of jail, you obviously lost a heck of a lot of weight. So remind me you were what weight and then you left at what weight? So I was 231 and then I went, I left, I came home at 160. And people didn't recognize you, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I was walking down the street, and people would just, like, double look and be like, who is that? And I'd be like, it's course. And they'd be like, what the hell happened to you? Like, were you smoking crack or something? So, But, um, yeah, people really didn't recognize me, which was a good thing, too. Did it give you an opportunity to sort of want to reinvent yourself? You weren't the same person physically uh, going in as you as you did coming out. Yeah. So... So I didn't change my attitude just because of fitness. Everything was, I had a spiritual awakening while I was in prison. Um, Towards the end of my incarceration, I got into altercation with an officer, and it led me into solitary confinement. And from there, I I was really stressed and going out of my mind because I was supposed to go home in two months. And in this position, I, like, wrote out a 10-page letter out to my family letting them know Look, I'm not coming home. I'm going to be in prison for another couple years. And uh, at this point, um, I enclosed the letter, stuck it in the envelope, and the problem was I didn't have any stamp to send out this letter with. 
So this that same week, my sister wrote me and and out of the blue and and told me to read Psalm ninety one, and I was like, hell no! Like I don't believe in God. I don't really want to read anything from the Bible. It's all a hoax. Um, and so I was there for another week, and I was just bored and didn't know what to do. And I and all I had in my cell was paper, pen, and an envelope and my Bible. And I was on 24-hour lockdown. So I opened up my Bible to Psalm 91, and I I started reading Psalm 91, and in between the Psalm pages, a stamp fell out of my Bible. And that was the stamp that I needed to send out this 10-page letter out to my family. So it was just a, a revelation for me. Um, some people call it an epiphany. But I, uh, it just woke me up there, and I said, there's something bigger than myself. And I started reading the Bible from front to back and really understood, like, I cannot go back to selling drugs. I I damaged so many lives, so many families. Like, I need to start doing something uh, right and giving back to society. And this is the way I found to do it, through the fitness. And what are what is your what is your hope? And what, what you know, what's next for you? Where do you want to see this go? So I want to I want to develop uh, a curriculum uh, for people that want to be personal trainers and want to, you know, copy my my style of, of working out, um, just like Zumba and things of that nature. I'm calling this a prison style boot camp. So I want to get people that's coming. Even I have a couple trainers that have done prison time. And I'm giving them an opportunity to get back to work. And what I want to do is sell my certifications. So I want to sell a prison-style boot camp certification. And hopefully it'll all work out. Y'all ready? Yeah. yeah. All right. We're going to start with the jumping jack. Let's go. One, two, three. One, two, three. Cos Marte launched his business, Cos Athletics, with the help of Defy Ventures. The nonprofit holds a business plan competition, much like the show Shark Tank, to help people with criminal backgrounds become successful legal entrepreneurs. Jose Vasquez is a program manager with the organization. We basically equip them with the tools, knowledge, connections to create companies. Right? Uh, we also do employment placement as well. So how do you do that? How do you provide them with those tools? Perfect. So we recruit executives from throughout the city who come out to become mentors, you know, become volunteers, judges. So they go through this online. It's a blended learning solution. It's a half online, half in-person training program uh, where they'll come in. We help them identify what is the right business for them. Uh, we help build out their business plans. We match them with executive mentors who basically work hand-in-hand with them to create these companies, right? And during this whole process, we're running competitions where you'll stand in front of some executives, you'll pitch your idea, executives will say yay or nay, and we grant out uh, money. So for our trainings, we have $100,000 that we have to grant out. Right? This is not to say that one individual wins it, but you'll compete for it. And throughout this whole process, we also do a lot of character development, a lot of family events, and so on and so on. So what was the situation with Koss? Did he, uh, how much money did he win? How did that work for him? Uh, so Koss obviously is a superstar. So we recruited Koss from another organization. Um, basically, the first day I met him, he told me he was going to win the competition. And I told him, hey, man, show me. Show me what you got. Um, so I believe Koss went through the whole training, and I think he made a little bit over $10,000 with us. Uh, he didn't need any micro-lending from us, which was great. And now he's running his successful uh, prison workout uh, boot camp. So for him, that was seed money. It really helped him. Correct. Correct. And uh, he's made so many different contacts. You know, um, we were able to get him to have a TED Talk, 
right? Who does that? Going from, you know, being in prison to now, what a 180, right? And um, so we're extremely proud of Cost. So uh, help me uh, to understand. So, so, so folks come to you. Do they come to you with, with plans already laid out, ideas? Great question. So some of them do, some of them don't. Um, I personally think it's better when they come with a, without anything because we dive into, we spend a lot of time ideating, you know, identifying what is the right idea for this individual, what is the right business for them. Um, I'm not sure if Cost told you, but Cost lost 70 pounds in prison, right? So it was a perfect idea for him to train people how to do that. Um, but we also get people who come to us who say, I want to start a restaurant. Well, the next question is, do you know how to cook? No, right? So it's more identifying what is the right fit, what's going to become cash flow positive as soon as possible, because that's our goal. Um, if we're not able to put money in their legal money in their pocket, right, um, we're not going to be able to change them. And that's our goal is to transform their hustle. When you say transform their hustle, clearly in, in Koss's uh, case, that was really literally transforming his hustle because his hustle before was, was not legal. Exactly. So if you think about it, I would say business is business, right? Regardless of what you're selling. You could be selling batteries. You could be selling oranges. You could be selling what Koss was selling, right? But to run a business is the same concept. You need your customer service, your management. You know, you need to deliver your product. So that's exactly what it is. Um, a lot of people say that we're in the business of second chances, but for many people, right, maybe people like Haas, it's a first real opportunity. So, you know, all we're doing is just transforming that hustle in a legal way. Do you find that sometimes it's difficult for uh, folks to even see that? Like, obviously what you're saying, it makes perfect sense, but do they, do they see that or are you giving an opening their eyes to see that, you know, hey, I didn't realize that I actually have all of this business experience, although I was doing it in the wrong way? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. A lot of people don't realize how smart they are, how entrepreneurial they are, right? So they may not know the lingo of, you know, one thing I always like to talk about is like the SWOT analysis, right? The strength, weakness, opportunities, and threats. A lot of people may not know the acronym, but so many people who come from that lifestyle know the mechanics to it. Right, so it's always saying you have the mechanics to it. Now let's let us provide you the knowledge, so you're the full package. And it's just amazing how they just transform the hustle. I guess there's really no question that um, there's a stigma attached to being an ex-con, mm-hmm. uh, and then clearly starting a business. How how much do you work with them? Because uh, I've talked to to other um, formerly incarcerated people who don't want to tell anybody mm-hmm. that they've spent time in jail. So how do you how do you broach that with folks? Great question. So this is part of our character development, right? Uh, we tell them that their past is what makes them who they are today, right? It's what makes them great entrepreneurs. It's what sets them apart from individuals. Because if you think about it, they've been rejected over and over because of their past. So of course they don't want to speak about it because their experience has been negative. Um, but here at The Five Ventures, we create a community of extremely influential entrepreneurs, CEOs, executives who all come in and say, you know, we're, we're not judging you because of your past. We want to know who you are today and who do you want to become, right? So when you get that affirmation here in this community over and over, you start to believe like, you know what, they're right. And again, it just shows you that what you've been through makes you who you are today. So the struggles that Kos went through in the past and the things that he learned is what's making him a great entrepreneur today. How wide ranging is, is your clientele, the people that you work with and their backgrounds? Uh, everything. So we don't discriminate on any charges. Obviously, there's some charges that are more entrepreneurial than others. Um, but, you know, I personally think that those who have hard, who have harder crimes and have done way more time um, are easier to work with. Because if I, if I just did 20 years, there's a high, high chance that I, I am never going to go back. 
uh, compared to someone who spent a night in jail, right? Um, but we everything, everything we serve everything. And how varied are the businesses that have come from your work? Everything. So we do everything as costs like workouts, uh, caterers, painting, construction, transportation, mobile apps, you know, marketing firms, music development firms, so all types. So in two years, and a little bit over two and a half years here in New York City, we've already created 71 different companies that within have created 85, 84 different jobs. You know, that's what excites me. That's why I do this type of work. That is what I personally feel is going to help us impact communities and lives and families, right? Because that's being able to offer people an opportunity, a real opportunity. So, How many people are you generally serving at any given time? Um, so in this year, we've served close to 200 people in 10, in 10 different states. So this 2015 is going to be our biggest year. We're really emphasizing on recruiting to get in as many people as possible. Um, so we're really excited about it. Jose, thanks so much. Thank you. Jose Vasquez is a program manager with Defy Ventures. The nonprofit helps people with criminal backgrounds become successful legal business professionals. The organization helped our first guest this morning, Cos Marte, transform himself from a drug kingpin to a fitness entrepreneur. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. For past episodes of the show, you can check out our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also download previous episodes or subscribe to new ones on iTunes. And don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're listed on both as WFUV's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.